Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 367 through 369, which will cover manga chapters through for 472 through 474. And this is it. With Ors now fully turning his attention to the Straw Hats, they have to somehow defeat him while Luffy tries to take on Moria. But a sudden appearance of a third party complicates things to a whole new level. Alrighty, so let's get into the synopsis. Luffy is giving chase to Moria and his shadow clone, while the rest of the crew has to find a way to defeat Ors or at least survive until Luffy beats Moria. In order to do this, they've got to band together and work as a team. However, a new wrench is thrown into the situation with the sudden sh- and shocking appearance of a second Shibukai on the island. Alrighty, so differences. So there are actually quite a few of them here in this set of episodes. So the whole sequence with Brooke and the milk is only in the anime. The part where he shows up with the salt later on is canon, but in the manga, we never actually get to see how he got the salt. Similarly, he mentions how he went to look for milk and tells everyone that milk will heal him after he shows back up. However, again, in the anime, we actually do get to see all this. So none of this is news to us. Um, which is why the dialogue feels a little repetitive because in the manga, that's the first time he actually lets us, the audience, and the crew know about those developments. Next, we also uh, get to see a bit more from the beginning to the end of how Nami defeated the squirrel zombies and got the info about where the treasure was taken. And then the whole bit with the retry of Tactics 15 is added for the anime. So pretty much everything after Auras gets back up yelling, knock it off, till when Zoro and Frankie kind of buckle his knees is filler. So pretty much half that entire episode is filler as they retry Tactics 15 and then they, <laughs> they only do it with three people this time. And none of that is in the manga. Another minor thing that was added was whenever when Luffy tries to imagine what happens and he tries to remember what happens if he was exposed to the sunlight and he imagines himself burning up. That sort of fantasy uh, reimagining is added in the anime as well. Um, and this one could may or may not be. It's kind of hard to tell, but this might just be me. At the very end of episode 369, when Brooke is carrying Usopp in the anime... It looks like Usopp is freaked out to the point where his eyes have gone white. But in the manga, you can clearly still see his pupils. So he looks a lot more composed, just in a really awkward position being slung over Brooke's shoulder. It's a very minor change, but it's just something I've, I kind of noticed in the anime. It, it seems like his pupils could be there. There's like a little dot, but I can't quite tell for sure. And then lastly, throughout all these episodes... We get flashbacks to moments that we've already seen from previous episodes. Now, I'm not going to list them all because there are quite a few of them. But just know that if they're scenes that showed up in the past episodes, they were, they were added back into these as filler to buy some time. In the manga, they, they mention these moments having happened, but they don't actually flashback and take up time. So that'll do it for the differences. So let's get into the episodes themselves. So like I mentioned in the last podcast, this is the point where the arc starts to get really good. Before that, though, we get a short scene where Lola finally gets her kiss on Absalom. Lola is so sweet, though. I, I just love her and Nami's growing friendship. And, you know, it's just a really cool thing. And yeah, I really like it. 
Now on to what we've been looking forward to, the Straw Hats versus Oars. They have to figure out a way to weaken and defeat something the size of a galleon ship. But the speed and craziness of Luffy is in Oars is just making up dumbass moves left and right. Like Luffy by ch- charging in with Gomu Gomu no butt drop. And Usopp's reaction, there's no such thing, gets me every time. It's so funny. And as they all scatter, Frankie calls out to everyone to do something called Tactics Number 15. And Usopp and Chopper react like they know exactly what he's talking about, as if they practice this. But Zoro and Sanji are like, what? <laughs> but they go along with it anyways. Then we get an incredibly well-animated and hilarious homage to the classic Toksatsu robot merging scenes, like in Super Sentai, or the equivalent of the Power Rangers, like with the Megazord, or like in uh, the series Voltron. And honestly, this whole joke and sequence came out of freaking nowhere, Like I said in the past, I feel like Oda is just using Thriller Bark to throw every absurd idea he's got and just having so much fun with it. I mean, they formed to create a bigger combination called the Big Emperor. And just looking at Usopp once he's docked gets me bursting out laughing so hard each time. His arms are like curled like a giant claw. (laughs) So it's just too much. But the kicker to this entire joke is that the left arm is not docked, and this was clearly meant for Robin. (laughs) But she's seen standing out to the side, refusing to dock, and her response is absolutely perfect. And she says this with the straightest face possible. No, this is embarrassing as a human being. (laughs) Not only that, she says it twice for emphasis, breaking everyone's heart, including Oars himself. Even Zoro afterwards is kind of like the, what the hell was I being made to do? (laughs) Yeah, I love, this joke is so funny. It just comes out of nowhere. But anyways, we cut to Brooke and and something amazing gets revealed here as it seems pretty obvious when you kind of think about it. But since Brooke doesn't have an actual body and is only made of bones, he heals and recovers differently from a normal person. And sure enough, it turns out that he recovers strength from drinking milk. (laughs) Like, why this makes me laugh so much is beyond me, but maybe it's because it's so simple, it's stupid. (laughs) And yeah, it makes sense. And it's kind of like something like a 10-year-old kid would come up with. But yeah, it works. And now that the Straw Hats have regrouped from the failure of Tactics 15, this is where the culmination of the foreshadow of sort of the crew-wide combo attacks that I mentioned all the way back at the beginning of the arc is coming to fruition as we get to see the entire crew do some amazingly fun combos here on, from here on out uh, to try and take down oars. Of course, we've seen them do combo moves in the past, but this is the first time we've seen it on this scale, where there are more than just two of them, but at least six of them working together. And Toei knew this episode was going to be a bit special, and you can tell they spent a little bit of extra effort to animate this episode a little sharper and it looks amazing. Like the shading looks great. The lighting is good. Like yeah, everything looks amazing in this episode. But yeah, Robin f- gets to finally flex her muscles a little bit as she creates an insanely big limb by combining a bunch of her normal sized arms and calling it the Chien Fleur Big Tree. And then Frankie does what only Frankie would do by building a huge set of stairs out of just random wood planks. Uh, with Chopper just kind of like following him as he feeds him wood. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then they basically walk up these stairs 
to do a dual heavy punch with the super frapper gong. And as they not only combine Frankie's carpentry skills with Chopper's medical knowledge to kind of rattle Orz's head and brain, Sanji then finishes off Orz's last limb with an insanely impressively animated anti-matter kick course, which knocks Orz down. And this is the first time I think we've ever seen the anti-matter kick course performed horizontally. The other two times we've seen him use it, it's always been vertically. This does knock down Orz. And I gotta say, this sequence was so awesome to see. Like, the novelty of seeing the Straw Hats all work together to take down one enemy is just something you don't see often, if ever. So seeing it here so gorgeously animated is a real treat and just super fun. However, episode 367 ends on an insane cliffhanger that just turns this whole arc on its head as we see another Shibukai just out of nowhere on the sunny, and it's none other than Bartholomew Kuma. And at the time, I remember thinking, what? Like, they now have to deal with two freaking Shibukai and oars? It was kind of getting to the point of like, how the hell is this arc going to end? And by this point, you're just really kind of on the edge of your seat because this is insane. Two, Shib- two Shibukai just right there. And with that, episode 368 picks up with Nami still looking for the treasure on her own, while the rest of the crew kind of messes around with oars, including another attempt at Tactics 15. But this time, they get even less participation as Zoro and Sanji not decline in addition to Robin. And this whole sequence, as mentioned, is just filler for the anime. It was originally thought by most of the crew that they were just stalling till Luffy could beat Moria, but Frankie and Usopp completely misunderstood what Zoro and Sanji were trying to do this entire time, which is to actually beat Oars. And of course, that's what their actual aspirations would be, not just to stall, but actually win outright. But later on, we see why Zoro especially is trying to defeat Oars, as he gives an explanation, even though Usopp's sort of strategy of holding out and stalling is a very valid one con- considering the opponent that they're up against but I'm not really going to get into it as it's spoilers for the next set of episodes so I'm just going to leave it at that for now we'll get into a little bit more later but to end this episode again with another huge cliffhanger concerning Kuma but before that we finally see Nami reach the sunny as Perona and her zombies are loading it up with treasure and supplies to make a run for it but now Perona's got Nami and Kuma to contend with. This again has kind of a horror movie vibe to match the thriller bark tone so far. And Perona at the sight of Kuma is brought to her knees, or her ass really. Perona even at this point renounces any association with Moria when confronted by Kuma, which kind of shows the kind of loyalty that Moria's captaining philosophy just instills, where he just kind of treats his crew like objects to be used. Perona just turns and tries to hightail it out of there to save her own ass. What's interesting, though, is is that of the three phantoms, Perona is actually kind of the least evil of the three. In fact, other than kind of messing with people and her, with her negative ghosts, she doesn't really do too much aside from being a combatant for Usopp. Whereas Absalom and Hogback have done some truly heinous things, so it could be that maybe Perona just really wasn't all that attached to Moria's sort of evil ways to begin with. That's just kind of my sort of interpretation of it. But, you know, that's definitely all sort of underneath the surface. And you really it's never explicitly stated. But we don't really have much more time to learn anything else about Perona. As something truly terrifying happens to her, 
as Kuma just kind of creepily asks her a, ra- a seemingly random innocuous question, where would you like to go on a vacation? And to her credit, though, she actually tries to stand up to Kuma, but then almost as suddenly as he appeared, Kuma touches Perona and she just vanishes. And I remember thinking, what the hell, Double Proof, is this? And why is he so OP? He just touches people and they disappear. And then he displays the ability to teleport right in front of Nami. And I naturally begin to theorize he must have some kind of teleportation fruit that allows him to move others and himself in an instant. But I couldn't come up with a name. I I didn't know what the name of the fruit could possibly be. And I still didn't quite know how his powers worked. But then the question kind of springs to mind. In, In that case, Perona's probably not dead. But where the heck did Kuma send her? Did he actually send her to a place that she described as her ideal vacation? Like, I doubt a Shibukai that was just threatened would have been so benevolent or accommodating. And yeah, definitely a mystery, but also a terrifying opponent. Especially if all he has to do is touch you and you're gone. Like, how do you fight something like that? And it kind of starts to make make sense why this guy is one of the more powerful Shibukai, or at least the sense that you got when he was first introduced along with Doflamingo. I mean, so yeah, Kuma appearing here at the time was, yeah, it was a pretty big shocker and a big deal and kind of turned this arc up to 11 and on its head. It was hard to fathom at the time how Luffy was going to fight two Shibukai, which seemed virtually impossible. Like, he, he was already having enough hard enough time against Moria Crocodile was no pushover either. Now he has to face two of them, with Kuma being worth more than both Moria and uh, Crocodile. So it's like you're facing an even more powerful Shibukai, which is pretty scary to think about. And he seems particularly interested in Luffy and his relationship to Ace, which seems very ominous, but for whatever reason, he just leaves Nami alone. Perhaps he doesn't attack anyone that doesn't necessarily pose a threat to him. I'll talk a little bit more about Kuma here uh, in the spoiler section. Also, as a side note, at the 18 minute and 43 minute mark of episode 369, we do get a Panda Man sighting in the background of the crowd of the zombies. So keep an eye out for that. Once we get to episode 370, Zoro wants to test out his new sword Shusui against Ors and decides to take him on one verse one. And I really like this sequence as you get to see how he kind of learns to use his swords. It's cool and important to see that even someone who's ultra-skilled and talented as Zoro still needs to take time to study and practice with something new. We also get to see some past themes when it comes to the swords. First is the idea that swords in One Piece, particularly the Meitos or the named swords, all have sort of a will or soul to them that needs to be kind of tamed. And we also revisit the idea and theme that swords have weight to them and I don't mean physical weight as Zoro can obviously lift a building sized boulder by this point so a a katana shouldn't really be an issue in terms of like physical weight but more so the spiritual weight that the sword carries sort of that weight you know that that weighs on a wielder if they haven't spiritually or mentally built themselves up and just as he lectured Hachi about in Arlong Park where Hachi obviously talks about how his swords are are heavier and therefore do more more damage, but Zoro then counters with the fact that his swords are heavier in the sense that spiritually he he has more weight behind his swords, which is why Zoro ends up winning. And yeah, this kind of 
idea isn't necessarily just sort of a, a mental one. It, it seems to be an actual thing with swords. There's sort of a mysticism with like the powerful swords in One Piece where they do have some sort of a soul. Almost like how wands choose the wizard in Harry Potter, as if the sword also kind of chooses the wielder. And if they're not attuned to the swords in terms of, you know, spiritually and mentally, then it kind of rejects them and it becomes harder to use. It's also like, in a way, a lot like the Darksaber from Star Wars. If you've ever watched the anime series Rebels or the live action series The Mandalorian, they both demonstrate this quite literally as both Sabine and Din mention how heavy the saber becomes the less attuned to it they are spiritually with the force. One thing in particular I love about this specific episode 370 is its animation and the fact that they sort of sacrifice a bit of detail and the shading for much more fluid movement and it looks amazing as we see Zoro take on oars. It gives each movement and attack a lot of energy and sort of emphasis you see that as they employ a lot of stretching and squashing effects to really convey power, speed, and impact, combined with a bit of more dynamic camera movements because of sort of the less detailed animation that they're able to pull off more dynamic camera angles and movements, more so than normal. And although Zoro is unable to hit oars, maybe if... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe if Zoro didn't yell out each attack and warn his opponent, he might be able to actually hit something. And I know that's an anime trope and that's never going to stop. And I love it when, when guys call out their moves. But I, I always find it funny how people are like, how did you dodge that after he just announced what he's going to do and when he's going to do it? I always found that funny. But then we get a classically uh, amazingly written uh, exchange between the Straw Hats that again showcases each character and their sort of thought process and differing personalities. As Zoro is still having no luck against Oars and Usopp begins to plead with Zoro that it's pointless and they should just run the clock out till Luffy beats Moria. And I love these types of scenes so much because we get to really see how each of their differing perspectives, strengths, and weaknesses come together and work to come up with the best solution. Usopp, the ever sort of scared conservative, just wants to take the safest route, which at the time can be the right choice. But in this case, Zoro always being kind of the most tactically soundest and most pragmatic has thought ahead and analyzed the way Moria and his crew fight and understands that Luffy has his weaknesses despite how strong he is. And Zoro is preparing for the off chance that maybe Moria gives Luffy the slip by deceiving him rather than actually outright fighting him on a level playing field. And to many outsiders to the story of One Piece, Zoro is often seen as sort of this brutish meathead. But moments like this really shows just how multidimensional he is with how intelligent and thoughtful Zoro actually is. Not just in terms of his compassion for his crew and the fact that he always tries to protect them, but that he's not just an, you know, a muscle-bound idiot like most characters like Zoro would be portrayed as, but he's actually incredibly intelligent when it comes to tactics and fighting and combat and not only that but the fact that he's still able to be maintain sort of calmness in the face of a giant zombie that so far they've had their asses handed to by and still maintain sort of that level-headedness to be able to think ahead and come up with different alternatives to situations and really seeing what he as the second in command of the crew needs to do in to ensure the safety 
and victory of the crew. Also, this is more so just subtext in my own reading of it. So this is more so my opinion than, than anything really concrete in the actual stories. But I think Zoro is beginning to realize that they are starting to depend on Luffy too much and that he and the others need to start stepping up a little bit more. Enius Lobby proved that as Luffy was completely incapacitated after his fight with Luchi, similarly with Crocodile, and as a self-appointed protector and the second strongest member of the crew, Zoro is beginning to realize the need for both he and Sanji to start taking some more of that load off of Luffy if they're going to survive going forward. And I think this is where you kind of see that. Shifting gears back to the Shichibukai side of things, Kuma and Moria are now face to face and we learn quite a few interesting things from their short conversation here. First is the fact that Kuma appears to be the only one that actually follows orders of the marines and we saw this reflected earlier when Sengoku recalled the Shibukai after Crocodile's defeat. He and Doflamingo were the only ones to comply, although Doflamingo seems to just show up mostly out of boredom and just the kind of desire to mess, mess around. The other thing we learned is that Blackbeard was indeed successful in his bid to take over the new spot as the Shibukai left by Crocodile. As we saw in that same meeting, Lafitte was sent to recommend his captain Blackbeard. And after the defeat of, and capture of Ace, this is what propelled the world government to name Blackbeard as the new Shibukai. And the real kicker is, the world government is actually starting to become scared of Luffy and the Straw Hats and are pretty paranoid that another one of their Shibukais is in danger of being taken down by him, which would throw their entire power structure into chaos and have sort of that public sort of doubt the strength and might of the world government. And so they don't explicitly order Kuma to basically help Moria. They do decide to send another Shibukai to kind of ensure that doesn't happen, I feel like. And yeah, luckily for us, Moria is an arrogant idiot that would never let Kuma actually help him for the sake of his pride and ego. One other tiny bit of dialogue that I also wanted to point out that just kind of further emphasizes Moria's views about strength and having strong subordinates is the fact that he can't comprehend losing to a crew that has that's quote small and inexperienced of a crew as if those are the only things necessary to succeed as a pirate crew and he really kind of zeroes in on how small that Luffy's crew is as well as how inexperienced they are compared to his sort of massive army of the zombie pirates. Moria then starts his attack as he enters a cockpit built into Oroz's gut. With no choice Zoro orders Usopp to go find a buttload of salt as purifying him is the only way to defeat him now. But now armed with Moria's mind, Oars is that much more deadly as he immediately goes after Usopp to stop him. But just when we think Usopp has taken a massive hit, he's saved by none other than Brook, who has now returned with the salt. And so yeah, like I mentioned earlier, in the manga we didn't actually get to see this the scene with Brook where he finds the salt in the milk. And this would be the first time we've actually seen Brook since the Ryuma fight. In, in the manga so when Brooke appears like this it was a huge hero reveal moment and while this moment still works great in the anime it's still a little less so because we know that this was coming since we saw Brooke get the soul and knew that he was on his way but in the manga we had no idea what happened to Brooke until this very moment 
Anyways, regardless of the slightly less impact Brooke's arrival is in the anime, it's still an awesome thing to see the potential newest member of the Straw Hats now fighting alongside his future crew. And I can't wait to see how Brooke will fit in with the rest of the crew, which we will take a look at on the next podcast episode. And anyways, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some manga collection pictures. Also, I've recently started to stream on Twitch. So if you want to come see me or chat, uh, head over to twitch.tv slash sunny underscore underscore go. And yeah, as always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. Small spoiler section after this, but if you're not interested in that, stay safe out there and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye. Alrighty, spoiler section. So just a couple small things. Um, first off, the Xian Fleur Big Tree is definitely a precursor to Robin's sort of staple attack post-time skip, where she eventually goes on to consistently use this basically attack to create giant limbs and, and sort of attack, as opposed to just using a multiple smaller limbs. But it seems to be a lot stronger and a lot more sort of refined post-time skip as she's had a chance to practice it a little bit more. The other thing that we see, and this is more so just a kind of a joke callback, but Frank, the Frankie Skywalk is funny because Sanji will go on to basically call his Geppo um, Skywalk. And so, I don't know, it's just it's just a funny parallel, I feel like. Frankie's version of Skywalk is markedly different from Sanji's. And it's it's often memed, uh, <laughs> the difference between Frankie's Skywalk and Sanji's Skywalk. And then finally, yeah, Kuma here is a very interesting presence because I think at the moment, he's obviously knows Dragon because they've basically been together in the Revolutionary Army. So... It kind of makes sense why Kuma is also here and doesn't attack Nami. But it's also interesting that he didn't know for a fact that Ace was Luffy's brother. Now, I guess this isn't really public knowledge because it's more so just, um, you know, obviously it's real to them and Sabo, but it is more so of a ceremonial thing. They're not actually blood related and it's not like they made this very public to anyone. Um, but yeah, it is interesting here that Kuma is actually asking if uh, Ace was Luffy's brother, as if to sort of just confirm that. And yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to talk about more about Kuma once we get to the end of this arc and see him when he takes on his bigger role. Um, but yeah, that's where I'll leave Kuma at for now. But anyways, that's pretty much all the spoiler stuff that I wanted to talk about. So. I thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. See ya!